Our reading from God's Holy Word this morning is taken from the Gospel according to John, chapter 1, verse 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, For he was before me, and of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. The Gospel of our Lord. Praise be to you, O Christ. Please be seated. The first 18 verses of the Gospel of John just simply cannot be summarized in a sermon. Two weeks ago, we looked at the first of John's central concepts, which is Jesus Christ is the Word, and we barely did that justice, let alone doing any of the rest of it. Jesus is the Word, the reason, the principle, the message, the, the pattern upon which all creation was made. He is the very reason for existence and the very reason why existence exists. But there are several major themes woven together in this very brief passage. And we move on to our next, which is Jesus Christ is both the light and the source of light. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In Genesis 1.1, you have the entirety of creation, in a sense. How did God create reality? Well, he created out of nothing. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and Everything that will exist, exists in verse 1. God creates it, ex nihilo, there it is. But it is God's will that he create it in a way that it will require shaping. He will shape and mold it over the next 24-hour days. And he will pattern how the shaping takes place. He will turn to various things at various times and various days, and in the very first day, in the first act of shaping his creation, we read, and God said, let there be light. And there was, there was light. All of the shaping and molding of creation that would happen, all of the natural laws being put into place and the elements of the world being appropriated to where God desires them, of all of that, what came first was, let there be light. It is foundational, it is principle, uh, it is 
without doubt, the foundation upon which all the rest of the days will be built, the creation we know is built on light. And as God as creator is creating, he is encoding into creation uh, spiritual laws which can be seen in the actual creation. Otherwise, our Lord Christ, when he teaches parables, really can't honestly do that. When Jesus tells stories about a sower who goes and sows seed or that sort of thing, uh, if there's not actually a spiritual message in that to be told, then our Lord is just being very creative and there's no truth there. But God is creating the universe and he is speaking his word even as he creates. He is putting meaning into what he does and the foundation of everything that comes next is light. Light is absolutely essential. Light has glorious meaning throughout the scripture. What is light when the biblical writers write? Well, it's a number of things, depending upon context. Light is knowledge. If you go to the Proverbs, Solomon will describe ignorance and folly, which is not quite the same, as deep darkness, but the way of the righteous is like the dawning of the light. It begins like the the crack of dawn, and it begins to to grow ever brighter, and the, the wise have eyes in their head, to quote Ecclesiastes. They are able to see, whereas... The wicked and the, the fool, they don't have eyes. They are in ignorance. They are in folly. Light is knowledge. Light is purity. The scriptures a number of times talk about God as light, and the, the emphasis is on the fact that in him there is no darkness at all. God does not have an evil side, contrary to what Karl Barth said. You may not know it, but Karl Barth, the classic 20th century theologian, actually put forward that God has a dark side. It was the only way that he could explain the fact that evil is in creation. Well, the biblical writers totally disagree with Barth. God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all, no evil, no vice, no, no, no. Uh, anything bad that you could think about as bad, it's not in God. He is light, he is pure. Uh, light is safety. The wicked stumble in the darkness, says Solomon. They don't know what makes them stumble. They are in a situation of danger because of their ignorance. If you have ever been in a cave and had your light go out, or in my case, get smashed on the floor, you know what Solomon's talking about. You can't see your hand in front of your face. You don't know what's there. Your next step could be your death, because caves have pits and all sorts of things. Uh, Light is safety. Light is goodness. If it's purity, it is also moral goodness. The Bible puts these two things together often, but they can be pulled apart. When God is light and in him is no darkness, you find absolute goodness. We did not choose our creator. We did not design who would design us. But we come into a creation where our God is good. God could have been evil, you know. Uh, but God is God, and he is radically good, and God is light. God is life, and light represents life many times. And here in John's prologue, this is the major connection that he is making. Now, the others are also here, but in the text itself, in the word was life, and the life was the light of men. So that for John is our major connection. Life itself, real life, what you can call life, life worth living, life that is really life, uh, it's in the Word. And this life 
is the light of men. John effectively weaves all these things together in his epistle in the first chapter of 1 John where he writes this. This is the message we have heard from him, referring to Jesus. This is the message we have heard from him and declared to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ his Son cleanses us from all sin. Here, John links light with divinity. God is light. And in his prologue to his gospel... Jesus Christ, the Word, is light. He is clearly describing Jesus of Nazareth as divine. God is light. Jesus is light. They're the same. And if you look at what John says about God here, the things we have just walked through are all very uh, present. Knowledge and understanding of right and wrong, it's in the light of God Purity, goodness, well, that's who God is, and the light radiates out from him. Safety. Those who walk in darkness are separate from God, but God bids us into his light, where there is safety, there is goodness, and there is life. And the life here is connected to the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, cleansing us from all sin. Light is the absolute beginning of, of who we are in the image of God, in the very fact that we know anything. Most people don't know the meaning of the word epistemology. But it's a pretty important word, and uh, you really ought to know it. It means, how do we know that we know what we know? It seems like a no-duh statement, but when you begin to study it academically and philosophically, how do you really know what you know that you know? You know it mentally. You have cognitively worked through facts, you think, and have come to conclusions, you think. But the human mind is fallible, and it can be tricked, People have, quote, known things for millennia, which ended up not being true. How do you know that what you know, you really know? When I taught uh, critical thinking for Midway College, I used a textbook that they gave me, which actually wasn't too bad. Uh, In the first chapter, there were like 22 laws of critical thinking, and Law 7 was very, very telling It was, we shall have faith in human reason. Now, think about that for a second. I'm teaching critical thinking. The core of the book is going to be how you think and how you know things. It's going to be about the foundation of knowledge. That's what the course is. And one of the laws of the course is we will have faith in human reason. Well, isn't human reason postulated as opposed to faith? Isn't that the way academia usually puts it? You know, you got science, and it has facts and truths, and then you've got faith, and you just kind of grab that by, you know, whatever. Uh, but here in the textbook, they're very clear, very honest. Uh, we're going to have faith in human reason, because honestly, we cannot prove that human reason is functioning right, or that it isn't an illusion at all. I mean, honestly, how do you know that you're not just dreaming me? In fact, you're dreaming the fact you're here. No one around you is real. We are all figments of your imagination. You are a madman or a madwoman. Uh, You are actually sitting in a cell somewhere drooling, but you are dreaming that you are seated in a church listening to a preacher. Can you prove that's not true? How would you do it? 
The truth is, ever since David Hume in philosophy, uh, academia has kind of had to him and haw and say, we know that we know things, but we can't actually tell you how we know that we know things. But there's probably a good reason for us knowing things, and it kind of works out for us practically. So, yeah, we know stuff. John comes and says, why do you know that you know what you know? How can you be sure that the reality you perceive is reality? Well, it's because there is light. The life that is the word that was with God and was God This light gives light to every man. There is a supernatural action taking place. And because you are in the light of him, because Jesus the Christ, who is the word of God, is in a certain relationship with every human being, that actually gives each human being their sentientness, their knowing of things. And so you actually participate in the world of knowledge, really, because there is a ground of being that has spoken creation into existence. God said, let there be a tree, and a tree was a tree. And in the light of the life that is with him that you partake of, you are able to know things. Now, that is extremely mystical. That is not particularly scientific. You can't take that to a laboratory and put it under a microscope. But John is making the case when he says that the life of Jesus is the light, he is the reason why you can know anything at all. And epistemology seems to be the major focus that John is making here. How do we know we're not mad? How do we know that life has a reason? Uh, You know, we talked about reason and purpose in the fact that Jesus is the Word, How do you know any of that? How do you even see any of that? Well, you see it in the light that comes from him. He is the light. He gives light to every man coming into the world. That's why we can know, and rocks and trees can't, because it's a different relationship which we have to our Creator. It is not what Wesleyans call prevenient grace. John Wesley was not a big fan of the doctrine of election, as you know, but John Wesley was someone who read the Bible very well. He had a very solid mind, and he had to wrestle with, okay, if I don't believe in predestination, which shows up again and again in Scripture, at least I don't believe it like those dirty Reformed people, uh, what do I believe? Because I can't just say I don't like this part of the Bible. Well, on the basis of verse 9, John Wesley said, you know, Jesus the light gives light to every man coming into the world. That must mean there is enough light given to every human being to choose good and evil. And on this basis, he forged out a very new and novel doctrine which he himself called prevenient grace, God has given a little grace to all men, and if they finish the deal, he'll give them all grace. So uh, everybody has the ability to see the Son of God. They can make their choice. It's given to all men coming into the world. That's how it can be based on free will. The problem with this approach is it proves too much. Uh, what I mean by that is this. There is, a, there is a truly false doctrine called Pelagianism, which says man never fell. The concept of a moral fall where man dies spiritually and he is not uh, trapped by sin, he is not coerced by sin, he has a free will, he can choose good and evil freely, because he is not a tainted being. Uh, This doctrine has been thoroughly rejected by Christians for all of history, because 
You just have to go to Ephesians chapter 2, for instance, where man is dead in trespasses and sins. Uh, he walks in them according to the prince of the power of the air. Uh, he's enslaved to his sin. Uh, Pelagianism doesn't match scripture at all. And almost every Christian of every stripe agrees with what I just said. The Arminian agrees with what I just said. If you go to uh, our neighbors in a holiness church, they would agree there was a fall of man, man sinned, he fell. Well, in verse 9, the word gives light to every man coming into the world, at least as it's translated there. And if that's the case, it goes back before what the Bible describes as a fall, and it kind of counters the idea that a fall ever happened. So if Jesus gives light to every man coming into the world, there is no place for a fall. And clearly, we live in a world where people are evil. As has been pointed out, the Christian church has only one doctrine that you can put under a microscope and prove, and that is human beings are inherently sinful. So it cannot be that Jesus giving light to every man gives a free moral agency, a deliverance from sin to every man. But what Jesus does is he gives every man the ability to be a man to think, to reason, to feel, to be different than your dog, who also has some of that agency, but not like you. You are created in God's image. You are connected to what God is doing in the world. Uh, the world is about Jesus Christ. He is the reason and the purpose. And you are uniquely attached to that. And in the light of Jesus, you can think about am I a good person or am I a bad person? Is what I am doing morally good or morally evil? You are able to conceptualize that. Your cat can't. At least I'm pretty sure they can't. I, I don't think my cats at home are sitting there going, am I a good cat? I've never seen any evidence of it. But you are able to do that. You are connected to the light. There is light given to every man. It is the life of Jesus himself, and you are able to conceptualize that. Even if you're a fallen pagan, you are able to conceptualize knowledge and meaning and purpose and ideas. Why are you able to do that and the tree can't? Well, it's because the life of Christ has been communicated to those in the image of God and you are different from the rest of creation. He is the light. Um, without him, there is no knowledge at all. Without him, there is no purity, there is no safety, there is no goodness, there is no life. Or for that matter, there is no fellowship with God at all. Because as John told us in 1 John, God is light, Jesus is the light, if you are not connected to the light, there is none of this in any way. And so John is, by declaring Jesus Christ the light, he is effectively, at the very beginning of the gospel, saying in very cosmic terms what Jesus will say further into the gospel, I am the way, the truth, the life. I am the only way to the Father. If Jesus is the light, if he is the light, singular, then there is no knowledge at all apart from him. There is no purity apart from him. There is no safety, no goodness, no life, no fellowship with God. There is absolutely exclusivity of these things in him alone. When I teach Christianity for EKU, I have to do it in an academic context. But they hired me to teach the truth, and that means teaching what the various religions teach. And Christianity, in its documents, now you may end up with some rainbow-colored New Age church thing, but in the documents of Christianity the documents are absolutely exclusive. 
Jesus is the light. Outside of him is darkness. Jesus' life, his zoe, his, his life principle, his spirit, everything about him, that's life. And if you don't have that, if you don't have him, you don't have any of these things. That's what I have to teach when I teach Christianity. It's not a burden, because I absolutely believe it, but academia absolutely despises it. What academia wants is that all roads lead to God. It's all the same conception, all the same spiritual world, and the New Testament will have none of it. If Jesus is the light, then there are no competitors that are other lights. He is the only light. He is the way to the Father. He is the source of life. He is the source of safety. He is goodness. He is purity. He is what you want spiritually. And anything outside of him is outside of all those things. That is just the way it is if you will embrace the Word of God. And Christianity is built on the Word of God. If you build your religion on something else, you have a religion, you don't have Christianity. Jesus is the light. And John the Baptist wasn't and isn't. In verse 8, we read this concerning John. He was not that light. Okay. Why are you telling me this? In fact, if you consider the flow of these 18 verses, why are we talking about John at all? Because John will break into these verses three or four times. Jesus is the Word. He is the light. He is the life. He is God tabernacling with men dwelling among us. He is the glory of God. John is glorifying Jesus and will meet his name at the, the, the end of the passage. That's who he's talking about. But John keeps breaking in. Why do we go to John the Baptist? Well, it's interesting how the Gospel of John will portray John the Baptist as opposed to, or perhaps I should say in contrast to, the way the Synoptic Gospels will portray him. In the Synoptic Gospels, the presentation of John is uh, pretty positive. We spent two years working our way through the Gospel of Mark, and the, the very first verses of the Gospel of Mark read like this. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance of sins. So, from the very word go in the Gospel of Mark, we are told that the prophets, in this case Isaiah and Malachi, there's a quote from both of them that have been worked together, uh, they have prophesied that when the Christ comes, he will have a forerunner. Because the words of the prophets are going to come true, there is no question about it, the forerunner must come. And so John came. That's the flow of Mark's argument. Uh, it has to happen. The, the Christ will have this herald. Isaiah said so. Malachi said so. John is the herald. He comes and proclaims Christ. In the Gospel of Matthew, he is, quote, the Elijah who is to come. In Mark 11, Jesus is speaking of John, and we read this in verse 13 and 14 of chapter 11. Uh, For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. That is very positive. That is very 
high spoken. Those who knew the Old Testament scriptures knew that Elijah was going to be sent back in some form. In this case, it is the Elijah. He is in the spirit and power of Elijah. But Jesus says of John the Baptist, he is the Elijah who is to come. He is the one. That is high praise, and that points you to the ministry of John to hold it in high regard. Um, At the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, effectively, in chapter 3, verse 1 through 3, we see John as even being the hand of God in restoring the people of God. The people of God are in a rebellious, backslidden state, and they're in a sorry state, but God is working through John and bringing them to repentance. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John was clothed with camel's hair, and he preaches, and he preaches repentance, and the people are being restored. This is, this is all very high praise of John, although there is one slight fly in this ointment. Going back to chapter 11 of Matthew, where Christ has spoken high of John, there is still this context of the quote, which is not quite as high as what this sounds. Um, Beginning at the first part of 11, now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples that he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? That's not quite as high praise from the Synoptic Gospels as you would expect. John has been acting as the forerunner. He has pointed men to Christ, but now his faith ain't real firm, and he's asking, are you really the Christ? And Jesus' response to him is a gentle rebuke, but it is a rebuke. Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. And then moving into Jesus' high praise, uh, in verse 11 he says this, Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now, that's, uh, that, that's a very sharp line. Jesus says, you know, the kingdom is at hand. John's been preaching the kingdom's at hand. And then he says, now, there's no one born greater than John the Baptist, but if you are in the kingdom of heaven at all, if you are the least of the people in the kingdom, you are greater than John. Now, that may require its own sermon at some point, but it's clearly part of the rebuke that Jesus is giving. John's faith is faltering, and he looks at what Jesus is doing And he says, are you really the Christ? Which suggests this is not the kind of Christ he had pictured. This is part of Jesus' rebuke. You are currently out of step with the kingdom. But with that fly in the ointment mentioned, really the Gospels have presented John in very positive light. This is a little bit of a corrective of this. In uh, John chapter 1 and verse 8, the apostle wants you to know, now John was not this light. There was a light, there is a singular light, a, a only light. John isn't it. And when you go further into the gospel of John, John himself will testify to this. 
In uh, chapter 3 and verse 22 through 30, we read this. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he remained with them and baptized. Now, John also was baptizing in Aenaon near Salem, because there was much water there, and they came and were baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. Then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification, and they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. Now, in, in this moment, John is truly grasping what his purpose is. John is not the Christ. He is the forerunner of the Christ. He is to point to the Christ, but he is not that Christ. The people may not be quite so sure. The popularity of John is very high. And if you go to the Gospel of Luke, chapter... And, and running through the first part of that chapter, um, I would go through the whole thing, but really the last couple verses of this are most important. In the, the first section of, of the chapter, you have John's ministry again. He's preaching to the crowds and the multitudes, and those words are used. Multitudes are flocking to John. People are coming out to him from forever And in verse 15, we read this. Now, as the people were in expectation and all reasoned in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ or not, John answered, saying to all, Indeed, I baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. But the important thing here to focus on is John is a religious teacher, and he is very, very popular. The crowds are flocking to him. They're even saying, is this the one that has been promised? And John has to tell them no. But that is a high popularity. People are looking to John. They are calling themselves John the Baptist's disciples. And we have seen how important that word is. If you are a disciple of a man... You are following them around. You are making their life your example. You are are taking in everything that person is. You are building your life around them. And the crowds are so taken up with John, they're thinking, maybe this is the Christ. Decades later, Luke records another encounter between the Apostle Paul, and some followers of John the Baptist. And as I said, this is decades later. John has been killed, Jesus has died and been resurrected and ascended into heaven, and we are in the 19th chapter of the the book of Acts, and we read this. And it happened, while Apollos was at Corinth, That Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus and finding some disciples, there's our word again, these are people who are really basing their life around something, and finding some disciples, he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. That's kind of foundational and you would think they would know, but they don't. And he said to them, Into what then were you baptized? So they said, into John's baptism. 
Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about twelve in all. But years later, years later, there are still those who are taken up with John. His message has so taken hold of them, they are disciples of John, and they are unwittingly missing the point because John is not the light. John is to point to the light. And in our prologue, John the Apostle keeps pointing back to John the Baptist to tell you he has a purpose, he's not that purpose. He is a mere man with a very high calling. As Jesus calls John the Baptist, there's nobody greater who's been born a woman. He has been given the role of being the forerunner of the Christ He is unique in that, in all time and space. You talk about an honor, but he is not the light. He points to the light. That is what he does. But if you take him as the light, you've got it wrong. And why is it that John the Apostle in God's providence has to write about this? It is because, as the Puritans have pointed out, man's heart is one heartbeat away from idolatry, and we don't idolatrize anything like we idolatrize other men. You know it's true. It is very, very easy for us to glory in mere men. And there is only one religious teacher in all of time and space who has been more than mere man. He is Jesus Christ, the Word, the light, the true source of knowledge, the true source of life, and any other human teacher like John the Baptist exists for the purpose of directing men to that light. They do not exist for the purpose of being glorified themselves. You know, like putting out a study Bible and having your name splash across the covers in letters about this big and then having the name of the translation about this big at the bottom of the page. Having the name of your minister in neon lights so that when you drive down the road after that flashing neon flag, you see the preaching ministry of thus and so, you know, flashing. Well, great. Why are you telling me his name? Why are you telling me who your minister is? Why are you celebrating him? If he is doing what God has called him to do, he will be pointing you away from him and pointing you to the light. There is one light, one alone, and if you're focusing on him, you're doing it wrong. I could bring up huge examples. When I was a young man, I had a friend named Vince who was a a good, solid Christian brother in the Lord and still is. He he is a, a true disciple. But when we were young, Vince went through an amazing crisis of faith. Uh, he had been an absolute devotee of Jimmy Swaggart. Before the, the collapse and such, uh, you know, Vince just lived and breathed everything Swaggart said. And when that happened, uh, Vince very nearly crashed and burned. I mean, it was a, a terrible blow to Vince's faith. And, and he had to reevaluate literally everything he'd ever been because he had... He had put his faith in Swaggard, who had been such a leader to him, but uh, men crashed and burned. You may be thinking to yourself, sure, 
Swaggart crashed and burned. He's a Pentecostal, and we're Reformed. That doesn't happen here. Yeah, it does. I mean, we have, we have all kinds of examples of Reformed men who have had feet of clay, and they have had their names and lights, and men have worshipped them. The spotlight has been upon their name, and it has shown in, in, in golden colors, and then the fact that they are men and sinful and in need of a Savior have led them to crash and burn, and they have taken lots of people with them. Uh, I could name names, and you know I could. Orthodox men who have crashed and burned. But I don't have to name people who have crashed and burned. John the Baptist may have had a momentary uh, (coughs) doubt, and he was briefly rebuked by our Lord, but John the Baptist died a martyr for his true faith. John didn't crash and burn, but still John the Apostle says very bluntly, now you need to realize he's not the light. Take a godly man. Take a faithful man. Take a minister who is doing it right. He is in the hand of God and God is using him If he's doing it right, he's going to point you to the light. He is not going to point you to himself. And if you idolatrize him, it's kind of on you, and it is idolatry. He is not the light. The Puritans had a saying. They asked the question, what is a true Reformed minister? And the answer is, a Reformed minister is someone who preaches the word and ministers the sacraments, leads in the singing of the psalms, and dies and is forgotten. They're not being negative in that statement. They're actually being very positive. What is a true Reformed minister? He's a man who presents the word to you, he administers the sacraments to you, He leads you in the worship of God, and you never look at him because he never points to himself. He is called to be a witness to the light, to point to Jesus the Christ. And when he dies, the church has had no trauma because the light is Jesus. It is not this man. God will raise up another man. We will die and we will be forgotten, and thanks be to God because we are not the light. Even the very apostles themselves dealt with this. When Paul writes to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians, he has to deal with this. Let's follow him through the first couple of chapters there. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and beginning at verse 10, Paul says this, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, Now, you have to know that Chloe's household is in the assembly and hearing this read, and every eye now turns to them, and they all sink into their seats. It has been declared to me, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now, I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, so I'm of certain men, or I am of Christ. Now, that's a bit of a fly in our ointment, because I'm preaching that Jesus is the light. You should point to him. Um, Now you have people who are saying, oh, well, you know, I only follow Christ. How does that fit in? Well, it fits in the way John the Baptist fits in. The Puritan statement is just a slight overstatement. We know the name of John the Baptist. We know the name of Paul. We know the name of Apollos. God used those men, but they were to point to Christ. They were the gift of God to the church, if men saw Christ through them. And so you have a group of people in Corinth who are, well, you know, 
I only listen to Christ. Well, you don't if you don't listen to Christ's servants, but their goal is to point you to Christ. So Paul says, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized into the name of Paul? Jumping to chapter uh, 3 and verse 5 through 7, who then is Paul, and who is Apollos? But ministers through whom you believed as the Lord, the agency is the Lord, as the Lord gave to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither is he who plants anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. What are ministers? Well, that's chapter 4 and verse 1. Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. Jesus is the only light. There is absolute exclusivity. If you would have life and knowledge and truth and safety and goodness, Jesus is it, and no other human being is it. If there had been a candidate for another light, John the Baptist would probably be a good one, but there is no other candidate. There is no other name that should be in lights. There is no other star. There is no other great work of God. The only great work of God is Jesus the Christ. And if a minister of God does his work, he will point to that light and he will say, he must increase and I must decrease. Otherwise, you have idolatry. 